Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Andy Boyd. My guest today on the program is Richard Maxwell, a playwright and author of the new volume, Evening Plays. Richard, welcome to the program. Thanks, Sandra. Could you tell us a bit about how you became involved in theater initially? Yeah, my father was a, a judge. I, I, I grew up in um, mostly in Fargo, North Dakota, around there. And he was um, he was an amateur playwright and actor and involved in involved in the arts generally. I'd say he like he had a ukulele and would accompany himself singing songs. And uh, it was just it, it it had that energy. My um, my sister, uh, my late sister Jan Maxwell, uh, like eleven years older than me, was also involved in in theater uh she i would go see her in plays like in um college and and stuff so um my brother was in a band um yeah so there was there there was a a creative energy flowing i guess you could say um in in my upbringing uh, we so i'm the youngest of six kids and after everyone had left the house except me, my, my dad took a job um, with OSHA. And so we moved to the regional office, uh, 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 Chicago. And uh, I finished, like, uh, my, my middle and high school years were, were spent in the suburbs of Chicago. So, um, and my dad kept doing the acting thing. Um, my... My mom, he got my mom involved in, in stuff. Uh, she, she became a lawyer for EPA in Chicago. And so, yeah. And then from there I would visit. My, by that point, my sister Jan had moved to New York. So by 1980, I was already visiting her here and uh, caught a glimpse of what that life is like when you're a struggling actor. And... Uh, let's see, I guess I started doing plays in high school and, uh, yeah, I moved from sports. I got, I got sort of, uh, drafted into the theater world and started doing more, um, acting and went to, uh, Illinois state for acting. And then after, uh, four years in normal Illinois, um, I went to work for Steppenwolf theater in Chicago as a, um, a f- artistic fellow. And uh, yeah, so I got kind of an introduction to regional theater at that point. And, and it was around that time that I met some people uh, and we, f- we formed a theater company um, called the Cook County Theater Department. And it was, we, um, yeah, we started reading plays and, and arguing about what we would do 
and it was around that time that I moved from acting into into directing and then from there writing. And I realized that there was a kind of limited audience in Chicago for the kind of theater that I was interested in, which was getting more and more experimental, I guess. And happened to go to to visit my sister in New York and saw the Worcester Group, um, the Worcester Group's production of Brace Up, which is their version of the Three Sisters. And I, I just, uh, I, I, I found it really unforgettable and it stayed with me. And, and yeah, and I also was impressed with just how much in demand um, like the, the theater was packed. There was a line, a wait list. And, and meanwhile, in Chicago, we've been doing shows for like six people. So it, it just, it, it seemed more viable. And um, with my sister, I made a plan to, to move to New York. And then, yeah, I mean, this, there's a whole, like, uh, I ended up interning for the Worcester group. Um, uh, I ended up hanging around the ontological and Richard Foreman's theater and just, I guess, fell into a, a community of like-minded people and um, started uh, just trying to make, make shows on my own. Um, and then Williamsburg, uh, sorry, Williamstown theater festival had a thing where you could, you could, um, uh, go up and be like an assistant director. And, uh, I wanted, I, so I, I did that, I guess it's kind of like an internship, but they gave you a, a space and, um, actors and uh, you could do like a um you know a one act i guess and it, at that it, it was that point that i decided to write my own play instead of doing an existing one and that that experience i guess set me on this track of where i am now which is writing a play and then and then directing it when you direct your own plays and and you sometimes direct plays that are not your own plays, I believe as well. Right. But when you, yeah. when you direct your own plays, do you separate your writer self from your director self or does it all feel like part of the same process? There's it's, I guess it's pretty compartmentalized. Yeah. It, it, and it doesn't have to be, but I think I, I saw that I, I started to see that I could, um, support myself better if I, if I split them up. And so I, for a while I cultivated that and, and, and tried to put out, put it out there that I was available as a director of other people's stuff. Um, I also wanted to, what I really wanted was for more people to direct my plays, but I think, uh, somehow that message didn't get through so much. It hasn't really gotten through so much. And I, I wonder if it's because I put such a distinctive stamp on, on my own productions uh, um, that I think, I think people tend to see them as one thing. And sometimes I do too, but it, when you are, when you fall into, um, well, I guess a, a theater company situation, which is what I'm in now um, and have been for many years, you, there's uh, an, I, um, uh, there's a, there's a pattern there. There's like, I, I'm the writer for a while and then rehearsal start and I'm, I'm a director, but I'm also still a writer because it's changing a lot. And, um, 
yeah, it's it's it uh, it. Um, I'm also an editor too. I think that's another important thing to say. Like I, I feel like I've gotten really uh, familiar with what needs to happen to a text, especially after it's been heard in a room, and and um, and that might be that might be an example of how they where they get synthesized, the writer and director. Yeah, people say that films get written three times when as a screenplay, and then the director writes the film again, and then the editor writes the film again. But usually oh. in theater, we don't usually think of editing as being a separate job. That might be the only like a marketable skill I have. <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> I haven't I haven't tested that, um, but it is it is something that really, after twenty odd years doing this, it's something that um, it it feels like a. It, it, it feels like something that belongs in a in a toolbox. I love the idea of having like a Craigslist post where you're like, for a hundred bucks, I'll tell you which twenty minutes of your play you should lose. Yeah, right. Um, when you go into rehearsal, do you always have a full script, or do you do you, and kind of devising or or exercises in the room to generate material? Mm, lately, it's become a little more um, collaborative. Yeah. I, I mean, lately it's that nothing has happened lately, but, um, but I have, uh, normally I would arrive with, I don't know, three quarters of the play done maybe, or even sometimes half. Uh, and then through rehearsals, as I get to know the performers and, and, and the characters, I'll, you know, continue writing and, and tailoring it, um, to the people. Uh, but it's, 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 it seems to be evolving into a more like there was a play recently that I did. I worked on called police and thieves and it was thrown together kind of quickly. And I, just for the sake of time, people, I'd ask people to improvise a situation, record it. And then I would go and, uh, I don't know. I would, yeah, edit it or, uh, appropriate it into, um, this or that narrative, and and that it was uh, it, it was an interesting time saving device because I one thing that's I think the most difficult, and maybe you would agree with this, um, the the most difficult part of the whole process for me is is just getting something down, like getting some kind of first draft down, and. Um, I don't know. I, I, I find different ways to trick myself into getting that draft. And once it's there, it's like, that's when it really, it's, it's after that, that the, 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 I want to say the fun begins. And that's, that's where the, um, yeah, when you have a, uh, uh, that's the editing and that's the, you know, when there's a finite sense of material, um, that's when it gets into, uh, you move into a compositional mode which I like. You mentioned that your plays have a distinctive stamp to them, which I think is true. Um, for those of our listeners who might not have seen your plays or, or even have read them, how, how would you describe your aesthetic? I think it's a, uh, the best, the best description might be that there's a earnest avoidance of any aesthetic. And, um, 
I think if you talk to different people, they'll, they might um, have different opinions about how successful I am. But I, that, that's where it begins. I'm not looking at a, a, I'm not looking for a certain behavior and then replicate and trying to, and then replicating that. I think it's, um, it, it's, it, it's, there's realism that's definitely part of it, but there's also an acknowledgement of the artifice that's equally important to me. Um, and so, the when you when you don't expect your performers to pretend um and you're not asking them to behave with an as if like as if this were happening it's going to change your behavior for sure um and yes so i yeah, I'm not the I'm probably not the I'm probably the last person you want to ask that question of because I because I because because of how because of the the mission there is a mission there and that is to avoid style. Yeah, to avoid style to sort of cut out style is like a it's a it's a it's a medium and and uh, it it changes the the message I guess uh, you could say and. And I'm, I've always been fascinated with what if you take that out, if there was a more uh, direct line to, in, in terms of communication, if there was a more direct route where you cut out the middleman, what would, what would that look like? And it, and it changes. It changes um, because the person changes. The person who's uh, interpreting the conversation that – that I'm having with them. So, yeah, it, it, uh, I wish there were, no, I, I take it back. I don't wish there were easy answers because it, it wouldn't be interesting if there were. I'm interested in that word style because I, I feel like that doesn't, at least in my reading of your place, doesn't seem to mean an absence of genre because you definitely kind of subvert and make use of different genre tropes. I'm thinking of, Samara definitely has elements of a sort of quest story or even a Western. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you, I mean, do, do you differentiate between this sort of magpie-like picking through different generic tropes and, and style? Does style mean something different from genre to you? Oh, I think it definitely is different. Yeah. Um, and I think when I'm talking, when I say style, I'm mostly talking about acting, the acting mm-hmm. style. Like it's, there's, there's a Kabuki style of acting. There's a Greek style of acting. There's a naturalistic style of acting. There's a TV style of acting. And I'm trying to, I'm, I'm trying to get past all of that. Is the, is it the sort of or the idea maybe, or maybe get around it, mm-hmm. you know, uh, elude it. That, that That's more the more accurate description of what it feels like. Is that hard for actors? Oh Yeah especially actors that have a lot of training I find because it, it, and one of the, I, I am always going to work with people who have no experience and I don't have any, um, I don't really have any, there's no hierarchy of experience in, in, in my view. So the fact that you've never been on stage before doesn't, doesn't limit your chances of working with me. And it doesn't also make your decisions any less valid. 
So if, 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 if you can get, um, if you can get behind that notion, then, then we're probably going to find a, a way to work together, you know, or, or if put it this way, if, if you can't, if like, if, if you're the kind of actor who, uh, doesn't feel that way, then I don't think we're probably going to work together. It's just, it's, so there's a wide range of experience and, um, but I think what makes somebody who hasn't been on stage so compelling to me is that, and it's not everybody, but certain people, uh, certain curious people, um, who, yeah, who are also brave, uh, make really interesting decisions. I find. Mm-hmm. So, how do you cast one of your plays? I mean, if you're not looking for, you know, the person with the best classical acting training, I mean, yeah. what what are you looking for when you? I'll tell you exactly. Do, do you, I'll tell you exactly. The last, yeah, I've had pretty good success. Um, well, I'd say great success because I, I got to know some great people through this. Um, but for the last three productions, I think, uh, I put an ad in, uh, in Craigslist and, and there's like, my name isn't on it. There's no affiliation, uh, of the theater or the institution. It's, it's, it's a, it's a very straightforward ad that says something to the effect of acting work available, no experience necessary. And then a phone number. And the people that see that, like that, you know, if you, it was like, it's almost like we're sending this signal out into, into outer space and, and anybody that picks that up and then has the courage to call the number and then show up for an audition, I'm already interested in that person. Mm-hmm. Like, because they got the message. Do you often get people who have always wanted to act, but have never felt like that door was open to them? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, uh, definitely. Yeah. Uh, in, in your book theater for beginners, you have a part where you talk about the word professionalism mm-hmm. and you, I, I got the sense that you didn't particularly like the term professionalism. And I don't particularly like that term either, but that seems to be related to this idea of, um, understanding that there is something to a kind of amateur performance in the sense, meaning done for the love of it, that can be compelling in a different way than, uh, you know, a, a polished, uh, well choreographed performance. Yeah. And I, I don't mean to fetishize, uh, amateurism or amateurs it's it's really when you when you take professionalism out of the equation you're you're talking about people and you're dealing with people like people one-on-one or in a in a room with others with a common goal and that's like uh i find that really gratifying um to, to to be able to make that connection uh with somebody um to talk about like why they came to do this project. Um, uh, yeah, it, 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 it feels to me, it feels more meaningful than, than um, some kind of ethos that's uh, steeped in professionalism. Mm-hmm. This is a, a big, broad question, but why do you do theater? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> I don't, it's, it's, it, it's, uh, it's something that 
it's a question that never goes away and it never should go away. I think about it all the time. Um, I think about it to the point where I, I think about it like, what is if I do a show without actors, is that still theater? And like I've been um, painting a lot lately, and that's uh, that's really um, made that made that question acute. Uh, I, I've done a show with video holograms, life size of people talking to the audience uh, on a on an Apple box. Uh, and so it's, it's like, a, I think it's a great question. Um, and it's also one that you should be, uh, I feel like I can walk away from it. I don't, I don't need to do theater. Um, and I may not do it. And as, as, if the, if the terms of it, so like if the terms of it, um, aren't aligning, then, then I don't, think you should do it uh i and i i don't um yeah i i think there's to me i feel like there's a lot of theater that gets made in the absence of that question mm-hmm. and i and and i don't think that's good i don't think it's good for, i don't think it's like it doesn't make for a, a healthy situation did it take you a while to learn how to say no to things that didn't feel right in that way no, because there weren't a lot of, I, I, I don't know what you're picturing, but there, it's, it's not like um, I'm getting Broadway offers to direct something, you know? Right. Yeah, I guess I'm not thinking about that. I mean, I'm thinking about it in my own experience. I get offers to do anything so infrequently that sometimes if somebody offers me something and, it, and I know it doesn't feel quite like exactly what I want to do, there is that question of like, well, is, is this close enough to the thing to be yeah, worth yeah. doing? Or Well, you're not, you don't direct what you write. No, I don't. I don't anymore. I I used to, but I don't anymore. And that's that's critical if you if you want to take the stance that I take. Um, and that's how I got into this mess in the first place was way way back deciding. Uh, you know, looking at plays to direct at Williamstown Theater Festival, I I, I couldn't find anything that really I felt like uh, said something that I wanted to share, and so I started. Yeah, sorry. It, 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 if you, if you're, um, I guess it's, it, 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 it suits my DIY personality. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's, 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 I'm a, I, I think I'm an impatient person and, um, restless that way. So I'm, I'm, I, yeah, I'm looking for opportunities where I can, um, have a more, uh, distilled experience. Let's say. What do you learn about your plays when you see like subsequent productions of them that you didn't direct? They make me uncomfortable. Uh, so you're saying like shows that I've directed and I've and experienced my production and then I go watch someone else's. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't happen very often. Um, <laughs> but, but I, it, it, it is, uh, it's weird. It's, it's a weird sensation because I already have this level of indifference when I'm directing and I'm talking about the writing, right? I have this level of indifference when I'm directing my own production. And and it might, this also speaks to that question of, of the writer director separation you asked earlier. 
Like I, I don't, um, I, I feel like I have a healthy disrespect for the playwright when I'm directing my own work. And, and I, and that's, that's a luxury, but it's also, it's, it's also useful. Um, I, I, uh, cause I, 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 yeah, I'm not beholden to what I wrote and I wrote it a long time ago. I don't really, I don't feel that anymore or I don't feel it nearly as strong. And, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it, anyway, it's a whole nother, we're in a whole nother realm now we're in the room and what you wrote down on paper doesn't mean the same thing when it's being spoken by people. So it's just there's a whole new host of variables and yeah so i i i when i see other people's productions i don't i i um i i, I get a little squeamish because i i don't feel like i need to be there <laughs> i'd rather I, i'm happy that people like my writing i'm happy that, that I, I i wouldn't i don't really put any kind of restrictions on what they might do and um but i i don't really want to be involved and in the way that your plays are are written and and even formatted there is often like real ambiguity about what is what is physically happening on the stage i mean there are even times when i'm unsure as a reader what's a stage direction and what's dialogue in the you know in the same way that i feel like when i read gertrude stein's plays i feel that way is Mm -hmm. is that is that kind of a a puzzle that you want the a, a subsequent, you know, reader or director to, to puzzle through or, or what's, what's your interest in writing that way? Form interests me. And, and maybe, uh, it's that restlessness of, of feeling the need to, um, continue on this, uh, on this path of discovery. And, uh, and yeah, so, like with the with the trilogy that you read, the evening plays. There's there's built into it. There's this element of the stage directions taking over, mm-hmm. and yeah. So it's it's deliberate. But I uh, I I I think uh, there's maybe um, I'm not really a poetry person, but there is a definitely formal aspects to writing that interests me, and I and and um. And it feels like uh, a way to um, continue to be an explorer, uh, you know, and find find new things or new possibilities. You refer to these three plays as a trilogy, which which I felt that when I was reading it, that they did hang together in some way. I'm not sure I could articulate exactly how. Why do you feel like these three plays are a trilogy? Why do you speak of them in that way? Well, before the first play that I wrote was the evening, um, and mm-hmm. the first play of these of these of the trilogy, and uh, that was that came out of uh, reading Dante's Inferno, mm-hmm. and it was more just a, an emotional response to it. Um, uh, I had a draft of Samara, um, so that. Yeah, let me back up a little bit because actually Samara came before the evening. The production of of the evening happened first, though, and and I, I think the bulk of the work of 
Um, Samara happened after the evening. But in any case, there was this, I, I, I became interested in having some kind of correspondence with the Divine Comedy. And, and, and so, like Purgatorio and, and Paradiso um, figured into finishing it. And it was uh, seeing similarities between Samara and the evening, I think, that gave me the idea to uh, make that correspondence. Um, there, yeah, there's this uh, feeling of structure in both of those plays, and all three, I think, ultimately have this quality where there's this sense of structure that comes apart um, as the play unfolds. And yeah, um, there's a, a journey that you can trace through the three plays uh, that is literal and also figurative. Um, and they, I think they're all, they're all in this conversation with a kind of, uh, well, with notions of an afterlife. Mm-hmm. There's some real brutality in the evening. I mean, it's, it's partially about cage fighting. What, what drew you to that world? I, it, that was an image that I don't know if I can really articulate it, but it was an image that I saw. Uh, I, I was traveling. I was on tour somewhere in, in I think it was Marseille. Oh no, it was um, in uh, Toulouse, and um, I saw this um, figure in a window, and, and in like a sleeveless T-shirt, and uh, mixed martial arts is a big thing in Toulouse. I don't know if this is connected in any way, but he did seem like a fighter, and um, I, I I just had. Uh, I guess associations based on that one image and um, started to think about his home life, his domestic life, his personal life, his love life. And I, and I, and I, these archetypes grew out of that as I was reading Dante. Um, So, you you know, Beatrice is Beatrice, I I, I suppose. Um, so there was, yeah, there was a, a, a beginning like that that was, and that I, I find that happens a lot where it's um, it, almost like a painting where it's like this is, that's the image, and the image is, telling, is already telling a story, and what happens if you follow that image? Mm-hmm. And that, um, I think that, but the brutality came out of, um, out of the, uh, this uh, this I guess a kind of assumption about um, this uh, UFC fighter mm-hmm. type guy. There's also a lot of music in these plays, and I'm interested particularly in your collaboration with Steve Earle. Uh, I mentioned that I saw Samara, and the reason I, I saw it actually was because Steve Earle did the music. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> and I've been, oh, you're yeah, fan. yeah, yeah. I've been listening to him since I was in high school, and I you Me know. Too. And uh, yeah, he's, he's great. He's, you know, I've, I've actually, I've, I, I saw his, uh, gosh, I forgot what it was called. He, the, the 
documentary theater piece he did about coal miners. I saw that, you know, right before the shutdown. And, and he's he's an amazing songwriter and performer. Well, you were How lucky. That... that had just started at the public, right? Yeah, I think it might have even been in previews when I saw it. Uh-huh. it really amazing work. Um, how did that collaboration come about? I wrote him a letter. I, like, I wrote him a fan letter. <laughs> and, you know, Sarah Benson, the director and artistic director of Soho Rep, she had a connection to him too. So we, I think between the two of us, uh, we were able to, he's friends with one of their board members. And, and uh, between the two of us, we were, and we got lucky too, because it turns out he's a huge theater fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, he knows more about theater than I do. Um, it's really surprising and super well-read guy. And yeah. Um, and, uh, and then you combine that with the kind, with his uh, musical capabilities. It's like, he's a real force. And, and not to mention the fact that he's, He's he's uh, the narrator of the of the show. I mean, he he took on this. He really got into the idea of the stage directions taking over um, and 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 taking on that part. Like it was, I felt like Sarah and I were just sort of um, tentatively. Uh, we're just sort of we're, we were feeling the waters and like sort of. And each time we met with Steve, it seemed like we got him to do one more thing, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and and, and uh, yeah, because we were just so excited about the about the idea um, and the possibilities there. And yeah, and 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 he's game and and um, yeah, just had really great suggestions and. Um, great arguments too, like just, just like really, really, uh, um, just a good guy to collaborate with. So. Yeah, and that play takes place over a, a, a very vast physical distance um, and many different kind of landscapes. But it, it was performed in a pretty small kind of black box theater. How did you create a sense of space in that physical space? Uh. Yeah, that wasn't my uh, my favorite space. I was I I really had to bite my tongue. I felt like because I because it's like that's where that director uh, part of me comes out. But I I think that those that that team the creative team uh, did a good job the best they could with uh, with contending with that that room. It had a um, just a really awful like compressor sound. Like uh, there was the HVAC. I don't know that they talked to any theater people when they, t- when they made the decision that there was going to be a theater in that building because hmm. there's condos above and the, and all the blowers are like, uh, are they're automated and you couldn't shut it off. And so they, they had to find ways to not make that noticeable. Um, so the music and, and sound was pretty constant. So that, that might've contributed to what you're talking about. Um, uh, there definitely was a, a sound bed that was made and, and then, yeah, uh, the, 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 there were a lot of plastic pallets involved. Um, <laughs> I remember what there was one of the issue, one of the issues with the plastic pallets was there was a lot of static electricity and oh, yeah. created, and that was like when people were mic'd um, because of these the acoustic issues in that room, and it was like I don't know, I forget how they, they solved it, but they, they found a way to not have it pop when people were walking on it. 
there's a character in Paradiso who's a robot mm-hmm. um, named Robot. Yeah. What what interested you about writing a, a character that was a robot? I feel like in a way this is kind of like a, a a perfect Richard Maxwell character because he doesn't, you know, the the kind of backstory is irrelevant in a way. He has his programming and he's he does what he's supposed to do. But uh, is that is that what interested you about about writing a robot? Yeah, that's not the first time I worked with a robot. Uh, I cast a robot in 2002. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, it, it, um, that's a tricky question. Um, but I find robots uh, vulnerable. And um, I don't know that I can really explain that. Uh, but it, it, But it is true that like robots, robots make the news when they do something spectacular. But I'm, I'm interested in what robots can't do, and th- and that's convenient because I don't really have a budget to, for it to do f- fancy things. That being said, there are like always, there's always uh, new technology coming along, and and you can ride the coattails of of those developments and and and. It's it's surprising with the help of um, technicians what what you can do and and I was I really got into that so like this new this this latest robot had a has <clears throat> has a hard drive and uh, it, it was programmed to uh, so I, I I gave over um, a hard drive of all of my basically all of my plays. And I, I was, um, I, I really wanted to. I was curious to see if the if the robot could do what what's essential to uh, acting is, and that's to to continue thinking like while the performance is happening. Mm. And so, in in giving these guys the the hard drive, um, uh, an algorithm was written so that it was trolling. The robot was actually trolling through that archive and um writing its own play uh as the play was happening so it 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 was a kind of uh inner monologue i guess you could say Mm. that's a famous acting term so uh yeah and 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 then at the end of the and and by the way you can all of currently uh all of our productions are available um to watch on on vimeo so you can if i you know you can uh you can see what i'm talking about you can see because it the robot's pretty impressive um because it it's also got a camera uh for a head so it's 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 able to it's and it's recording so it's listening it's remembering it's seeing and and these are all like uh, central tenets of good acting. Mm-hmm. So I, 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 uh, and this was all coming from this feeling I have that there's a certain, um, there's an inherent vulnerability to me when I see um, limited, some limited tech, limited means, limited technology, limited um, intelligence on stage. So it's, 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 uh, 
yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a way of understanding empathy. I think robots. And without spoiling too much of the ending of that play, there you you really emotionally attach to that robot character, uh, whether watching the play or, or reading it. And so, oh, that's um, good to hear because you haven't seen it; you've just read it. Yeah, I've just mm. read it. Yeah, no, that's good. But yeah, that scene just knocked me out. Um, oh, readers cool. will know what scene I'm talking about when they, when they read the play. But it's yeah, it, it's it. I think it's pretty effective in the production um, to see the. To see, uh, so you should check out the. If you need the links, I can send them to you. Yeah, yeah, that'd be that'd be great. We can actually uh, put that in the in the notes of the of the episode. So oh, good check those out. Yeah. Um, well, Richard, thanks so much for talking with me. I've already taken up a lot of your time, uh, but thanks so much for being on New Books and Performing Arts. You're welcome, Andrew. Nice talking to you. You too. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye now.